Now this morning, we are continuing our message series in the Psalms, and I would invite you to go ahead and turn to the Psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 95. That's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning. And this is the first Psalm that we'll be looking at together as a church family that probably fits the mold of what most people think about when they think about the Psalms. It's a Psalm that talks about singing and praising and and worship. And I think if you would ask most people, how would you define a Psalm? They would say that, well, that's what Psalms are. They're these songs of praise and worship of, of God. And so out of all the Psalms that we've done thus far, you know, and we've done a number of them, this is actually the first one that kind of fits into that mold. And so I'm eager to explore it with you this morning. And so we're going to do something a couple of times in this message that's a little bit different. And the first thing that we're going to do a little different starts right now. You see, instead of me just reading this psalm to you, we're going to read it together. So I want to invite you to stand with me right where you're at right now. The words are going to be on the screen, and we're going to read this psalm together because this is a psalm. We started our worship service with words from this psalm, but we're going to read it in its entirety because it is a psalm that, that has that sense of, of the corporate people of God um, reciting it together. So the words will be up on the screen. I'm just going to tell you right now, the first seven verses are, are really going to feel familiar to you, and then the last few verses are going to feel a little bit awkward, and we're going to discover later that that's for a reason. So let's read the word of the Lord together. Here we go. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Great job. You may be seated. I don't know as you heard it read, if you got what I was getting at, that the first part of the psalm feels very familiar as far as how we normally think about psalms and the call to praise. And that last section just feels a little bit awkward, God swearing things in his, in his wrath. Well, today as we look at the entirety of this psalm, we're going to see that the psalm is designed, the psalm is written in such a way that the psalmist wants to communicate one very straightforward point. 
And that point is reiterated in two places. The first is in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me once again. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Then again in verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Twice, there is this statement of, O come. And when we read it in the English translations, if you don't read it in the Hebrew, it can sound like an invitation. Like, O come. Hey, worship is starting. O, o come. Or, O come on over to my house. The truth of the matter is, this O come is not an invitation. It's not to be read as an invitation. It's actually in the imperative. And so as a verb, it is actually a command, not an invitation. So when he says, oh, come, he's not making a suggestion of something for you and I to do. He's actually commanding us, calling us to something. And what he is calling us, commanding us to do, can be summarized in this way. If you were to say, what is the call, what is the command of Psalm 95? It's very simply this. Worship God. This is what Psalm 95 is about. It is a call, a song to the people of God to produce within us worship of God. Not as a suggestion, not as a recommendation, but as a command. This is the psalm at its core. And when you break the psalm down, what you discover, church family, is he actually goes through and he does three things in this psalm. Number one, he shows us what worship is. What does it actually mean to worship? He then tells us why it is that we worship God and goes out of his way to make that point so that everyone is clear on the why we worship God. And then finally, you can look at this psalm and discover how it is that we actually engage in worship. So the first thing that he does as we look at the psalm, this is what we're going to begin with this morning, is this idea of worship. What is Worship. In the church, we throw that word around all the time, right? We, we say, hey, we've, we've come to worship or we're going to worship, but, but what does it mean to worship? Because the psalm says, verse 6 says, come and worship. But could you define what worship is? Like if your kid came to you, your son or your daughter went to you as a parent or as a grandparent, or if somebody outside of the church said, I hear people talk about worship all the time. What is worship? I mean, the psalmist calls us to it. God's word very clearly says worship, but how would you define it? So now we're going to do something again that we, I haven't done in a message in a really long time. I'm going to give you a moment to actually ponder and consider what answer you would give. What is the definition that you have for worship? God's word calls you to this thing, to worship. But how would you define it? Now, I know no sooner than I say that, because I work on a staff with a lot of different personalities. They, they said, Dave, you're going to ask people to do this. They're like, I'm not going to write anything down because I don't want to get the wrong answer. And there are wrong answers, okay? I'm sorry to say. But, but I want you to, to think it through as best you can. And if you have a piece of paper, you can write it down. If you don't want to write it down, and just put it in your head. So then afterwards, you can say, I knew it. That's what it was. Um, you can do that. But we're going to play some, like, music just for a moment. There's going to be a blank slide, about 30 seconds. I'm going to give you to think about it. I want to engage you. I don't want you just to sit there and to take in. I want you to ponder this. So here we go. They're going to be a blank slide. Listen to them. Well, don't just listen to the music. Think about how would you define worship if somebody were to come and ask you. 30 seconds. Here we go. Go.
There might be music playing. I don't know that they, I could hum it, but it's, it's okay. <clears throat> we'll sit quietly for 30 seconds. How would you define worship? About 10 more seconds. Three, two, one. Pencils down <laughs> for our teachers here. Worship. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. You don't have to give it the answer out loud. But I do think that most people, if they were to give an answer, they would probably include like, oh, worship is some form of praise. Maybe it involves singing. Maybe there's exaltation involved in your definition. And, and if you have some of those things, you know, that would, I would say is, is kind of part of worship. But as, just as a side note, I want you to do that exercise because that's an exercise that you should do outside of Sunday morning. In your own reading of the Word, do you take the time to when you hear commands within the Word of God or instruction within the Word of God to think through what those instructions really mean? Or do you just blow past them? Are, are you following me? There's an importance for you and I to use the minds that God has given us to actually think through the Word of God and to think through what is it that He is telling us, not just anticipating someone on Sunday morning to tell you what that means, but to explore it for yourself. The more you do that, the greater you will be fed, I believe, in your knowledge of God and of His Word. All right, that's as a side. But back to this. What, what is worship? Well, from this text and from the entirety of Scripture, I want to give you a working definition. And it's going to feel a little bit clinical at first, but I think it's a necessary one to kind of capture the, the wholeness of this. I'm defining worship this morning as simply this. The internal belief and the external act of submission to and exaltation of someone or something. Just kind of let that sit for a moment as you fill it in. It's an internal belief and the external act of two things. Submission to and exaltation of someone or something. There's like uppercase worship and then like lowercase worship. That's what we're going to talk about uh, today. But I believe when you look at this psalm and the rest of Scripture, I think this is a helpful definition for us of what is being talked about. You see, worship starts with an internal belief. It starts on the inside, where in our minds and in our hearts, we consider someone or something as worthy of being submitted to. That is, conforming ourselves to the wills, the wishes, the desires, and the commands of that thing. And because we believe that we are to be submitted to that thing, we also look to exalt it. It is something or someone that is greater than us. And so, so there's a praise element involved. We exalt, we make much of this thing. Worship is both internal and then external. External in the fact that we conform our lives to it. That means you should be able to look at my life and to believe just by my actions and my speech that I believe this thing should be submitted to and should be exalted. Now, you say, where do we get this idea that this is what worship is? Well, go back with me and look at verse 6 once again, because in Psalm 95, it literally says, O come, let us worship and bow down. It actually has the word worship right there. 
It's, it's a, obviously a Hebrew word that the English translators have translated worship. And so why have they translated as worship? What does that word mean? Well, it's a Hebrew word. Sha'ach is, is the basic Hebrew word. And that is a word that is used to describe someone who lays prostrate before someone else. So when I say that worship is submission to and the exaltation of someone, it's a word that was used to describe how you or I would come before royalty. Someone who, by their very station and stature, were identified by you or I as greater than us and one whom we should be submitting to. Which is why he says, redundantly, Oh, come, let us worship and what? Bow down. He is helping to explain what worship is really all about here. He's making it clear that worship involves submission and exaltation. Recognizing my place before this someone or something. And you and I, you and I actually know exactly what this kind of worship looks like, at least in a lowercase w sort of a way. Um, I might lose half of you with this illustration, but you'll at least know what I'm talking about. Anyone who enjoys sports or loves sports teams has an idea of this definition of worship. See, let me spell it out for you. You see, if you have a city team like the Padres, who for the first time in history you can actually watch, um, sorry, <clears throat> if, if you have a sports team that you really like, you've, you've probably engaged in some kind of worship let me describe it to you. You see, when you have a sports team that you really like and they're succeeding, typically you'll talk about that team to other people, fans of the sport. You'll say, do you know how great the Padres are this year, what they're doing and how many home runs they've hit and, and those kind of things. And, and as a fan, right, what are you doing? You're exalting the team. You're, you're building the team up. But then you're also submitting to the team. You see, because I've never gotten a call from the Padres where they're like, hey, Dave, yeah, we're putting together the summer schedule. Yeah, we wanted to know, like, um, do you have any vacation? Because we want to know, we're setting our games, and we want to make sure that you can attend. So, so does Saturday work for you? Can we play our games on Saturday? Have any of you gotten a call from a professional sports team asking about your schedule? No. What do sports teams do? They say, here's our schedule. And then what do we do? We conform. If we want to watch them play, if we want to celebrate them, then we have to set aside time. We have to submit ourselves to their ordained schedule so that we can watch them play. Are you tracking with me? And that's an aspect of, I value this thing so much that I'm not going to do this so that I can go and watch this. And when I'm there, I'm also going to exalt them because every time a home run is hit or a run is scored, I'm going to cheer them on. You can do the same thing with theater. You can do the same thing and maybe have done the same thing with politics. Submitting to and exalting. That's like lowercase worship. It can, it can turn into uppercase worship, though, where you are all about that person or all about that thing. And so this is what I believe worship is. It's the internal belief. It's on the inside and then the external act of submission to and the exaltation of someone or something. And if I can just make another quick aside, it's a whole message in of itself. Uh, you know that you were made to worship, right? Like you were created to be a worshiper. You were created by God to make much of things other than yourself. And you were created to be submitted to 
someone other than yourself. Now, because of sin in the world, we've distorted that. But at, a, at your very core, my very core, it's why we're always looking for things to exalt. And it's also why people will spend their lives in the pursuit of so many different things and why so many things control their lives. Because, because we worship. We were made to worship. And now the psalmist goes out of the way. I hope you saw it. It was pretty evident that he says, you know what? We're not just about worshiping any old thing, we have been called by the psalmist to worship God and God alone. And he gives for us here three reasons, three reasons and a warning as to why God is the one that we worship. Why for him to command us to worship should not feel like a burden, but should actually feel like a delight. This is going to be so beautiful, I believe, and could really revolutionize even when you come on Sunday mornings to worship in this place. You see, the first thing that the psalmist does when he comes and he says, here's why we worship God, is he sets it up for us. I'm going to start in verse 3. He says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The psalmist lays it out as plainly and as clearly as he can. The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, Yahweh himself, he is the great God and the great king above everyone else. What is he saying here? He's saying very simply this, God is supreme over everything. Who am I to submit to? Who am I to exalt? Why are we to worship God? He says, because you will not find anything else in all of creation that compares with our God. Now, when I read this this week, I don't know if your mind went there, but there's something kind of funky with verse 3, at least in the English translation. It, it, it says this, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. It can make it sound as though God is the greatest of all time. See, we use that phrase, greatest of all time, a lot these days. Um, have you ever somebody said, oh, that person's the goat, the greatest of all time. You know, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. Or the Olympics are happening right now. And, and when somebody wins more medals than any other person in their particular sport, they say, well, now that person is the greatest of all time. And we can read verse 3, and it can seem like God is being compared to other gods. I'm here to tell you this isn't a verse of comparison. God is not the greatest of all time in the fact that there was one who was greater, and then God became the greatest, implying that one day one can even be greater than God. Get that as far from your thinking as possible. The psalmist is trying to say there is none who compare to our God. Can I get an amen to that? There, he's not the greatest of all time in the sense that there could be others. He is the greatest. And the psalmist said, for that reason alone, you can look at creation, you can look at your life, you will find nothing beyond the God of the Bible who is worthy of your praise. And there's a very simple reason for it. It comes to us in verse 4 through 6. He says, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. This is why he's supreme over everything, because he's the maker of everything. Now, you don't have to do this by a show of hands. Have you guys ever heard me make that point before that God is the creator of all things? 
I hope that you have, okay, because I've made it numerous times. But I've made it numerous times because when we come to the scriptures, even when we're going through Daniel, this point is hammered over and over again in God's word. And when God repeats himself in his word to his people over and over again, it only means, well, it means at least two things. Number one, it's important. It's important and it's significant for us to know that he's supreme over all things because he's the maker. Because if he's not the maker, then someone else could have ownership of you and could have ownership of this world and could potentially be greater than God. And so this point could be swept under the rug. But he says you can't sweep this point under the rug because God's the maker of it all. So number one, he repeats himself because it's important. Number two, he repeats himself over and over again in his word for his benefit or for ours? For our benefit. If God has to tell us over and over again something, he is coming and he's shepherding your heart and my heart and saying, listen, I have to tell you that I'm the maker and therefore the owner and supreme over everything because you're going to be so darn tempted to not believe that truth. And so anytime in the scriptures as you're reading it, you might begin to drift from the idea that he's not supreme. He brings us right back, and he emphasizes this point. Now, this in of itself should cause us to submit and exalt him, worship him. But then the psalmist says, I'm now also going to show you another aspect of why you are to worship God that is far more personal for you and for me here in this place today. This truth is so precious to me, and I pray to you as well. Look at it, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Here he's coming, and he's saying, yes, God is supreme. That alone should be reason to worship, but I'm going to make it far more intimate for you. He's your Savior. God is our Savior, the rock of our salvation. The picture is things crumbling all around or the floods rising, yet we go to God because he is the one who is Savior. And in a very special way, the people of God, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they knew this. They had seen God rescue them up and out of Egypt. By his powerful hand, God had saved and delivered them from Pharaoh. They passed through the Red Sea. He gave them the promised land. God's people in the Old Testament, they saw and they knew God as the God of their salvation. Nowhere else could they look for their deliverance. No one else delivered them but God. That's how they knew him. But then we, as the church today, have a more fuller understanding of being able to say, God is our Savior, don't we? Because we know that our deliverance wasn't out of Egypt, and our deliverance wasn't into the promised land, we know that our salvation came through the rescuing and redeeming of our souls from God's wrath and the judgment of the fires of hell, which has been put away from us. We've been rescued from our sin-stained condition because Jesus Christ, God, came down into this world, into our sinful lives, and he died the death we should have died, and he lived the life that we should have lived, and he has given us that great salvation. Hallelujah and amen. The preciousness of God as your Savior. This is what the psalmist is saying. It's not just that he's supreme, but this supreme maker of everything could have left you what, and given you what you deserve, but instead he saved you. When I was about three years old, I've told this story 
uh, a while back. But when I was three years old, I was at a, um, a block party. I was just partying out. No, not by myself. My whole family, we were at a block party, okay? And there was a swimming pool, and people were swimming, and, and we were having just a, this, this great time, and all the parents were irresponsible. But I was in the pool, and I had my floaty around me, and it was a Batman floaty, Right? I remember it as clear as day. It was a Batman floating. It was old school Batman floating, not this new Batman. You know, it was gray and black. And I loved it. And I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. And I'm swimming in the pool. And there's so many people in there. And did I mention that parents were being irresponsible? Okay, just wanted to check. And so I'm in the pool. I'm enjoying myself. People are playing, but somebody came by accidentally, and they kicked the floaty that I was in. I could not swim. I'm only three, and I flip upside down in that floaty. And here's Dave. My feet are in the air, and I'm doing this. And I'm under the water, and I remember it, even to this day, probably because it was traumatic. Um, and I can remember seeing legs upside down. But I, like, wasn't panicked. But you know what was happening to me? I was drowning. I could not flip myself back over, and on my legs, legs are kicking. And did I mention the parents were irresponsible? No one noticed that I was upside down. No one who was there saw, except for one person, my brother Todd. He noticed, and the gaze, oh, those feet shouldn't be like that. Where's Dave? All I could see was the bottom of my Batman floaty. Like, I was smart enough to know to, like, to hold on to the floaty upside down, so I was like this right? Who knows what would have happened or if they ever would have noticed me, right? My feet are kicking. Todd swims over, flips the Batman floaty. I'm like spitting out water. And on that day, my brother was my salvation. He loves to take credit for that. If you spend enough time with him, he will mention that story at least once. He comes on that day and he saves me. And listen, I am tremendously grateful that my brother saved me. But do you know how often I I think about that, like how often I'm actually like go up to my brother and I'm like, I'm like, you are worthy of my submission and I exalt you for saving me. Like I don't do that often. It was like something that was done in the past and I'm just like, that's wonderful. In the same way though, if we're not careful as followers of Jesus Christ, we can do the same thing with Jesus though. You see, I'm grateful that my brother saved me that day from dying, but you know what, church? I'm still going to die one day. I just don't know from what. So he saved me from a death at that moment. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ has saved you. And what he has saved you from is, is not to die again. He has saved you into an eternal life. And so I'm grateful to my brother. But not only has Jesus Christ saved you into an eternal life, but every day, I'm just going to use Sunday. Every Sunday when you come here, Think about this. This past week, I know you because I know me. You sinned in some way. You sinned a sin that would have required the judgment of God and the fires of hell upon your life. Even the littlest sin this week. And yet, if today you are in Jesus Christ, you look upon that sin and you proclaim, I am saved. I am saved, and that sin that I did this week no longer has stored up for me the judgment of God upon my soul. Jesus Christ covered that sin. In just a little bit, we're going to come and we're going to take communion, and we're going to remind ourselves of the work of Jesus Christ. So, so what I'm coming to you and saying is that every single day, we don't go on sinning that grace may increase, that's what Paul said, but when you do sin, there should be cause in your heart to my heart to say, 
You are worthy of my submission and my exaltation because of what you have done in saving me. Do you know him as Savior? What an intimate, personal thing that the Creator has saved you. But then the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes even deeper than that. Look at what he says to us in verse 7. He says, not only is God your Savior, he says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his, what? Pasture and the sheep of his hand. God's not just the supreme, all-knowing being who we should just simply stand in awe of. He breaks it down for us and says, this supreme, awesome God, he's a shepherd for you. Do you know what he's talking about when he talks about a shepherd? He knows you intimately, and he cares, and he provides for you. God's not just supreme, and God's not just our Savior. God is our shepherd. And in case we want to know what that really means... It's a whole other sermon, and we're actually not even going to preach this psalm this, this summer. But Psalm 23, I just want you to read it so that you can hear what it means for God to be your shepherd. David said this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To have God as your shepherd means that right there. He leads, he guides, he provides. He knows his sheep intimately. He, he says, will one day bring us into his house. That's, that's how intimate the creator God is with you and with me, that he will bring us into his house. And tell me, do you think that the house of God lacks any good thing? I love going over to my folks' house even to this day. In fact, if you talk to any of my siblings, if you had a camera in my parents' house, even to this day, when any of us goes over there, we first, of course, acknowledge our mother and give her a hug and a kiss. And then the next thing we do is we move into the kitchen and into the pantry. Do you know why? Because my mom's house is always stocked with every good thing. I mean, I just know, and my siblings know, when we go into my parents' house, it's not so like I don't keep my house, you know, and stuff. But mom's always got that goodies. And I just think to myself, man, how much I enjoy being able to go and to see what my mom has, the maker of heaven and earth. One day we will dwell in his house forever with his presence and all that comes with it. That's the kind of shepherd that our God is. And Jesus then does something. In John chapter 10, I have to show this to you. Jesus comes in John chapter 10 and says, I don't want you to think about God as your shepherd in a very <clears throat> just like out there sort of way. He says, I want you to see that I myself am the shepherd of Psalm 23. Some people ask, where does Jesus Christ proclaim himself to be God? John 10 is one of those places. Look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 10, The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's a very popular verse. And then he says, verse 11, I am. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? 
that little phrase, I am the good shepherd, is Jesus saying, when you read Psalm 23, you're reading a description of me. And I actually go further than Psalm 23 because the shepherd in Psalm 23 gives you the picture of leading and guiding and walking with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus says, I don't just simply walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I died in the valley of the shadow of death so that death is only a shadow for you and not a reality. He's that kind of shepherd. For us, we have an even bigger picture and a more intimate picture of what it means for God to be our Savior, for God to be our shepherd, and for our God to be supreme. And so church, we owe God worship as our creator, as our maker. We owe him worship because he has given his life for us. He has called us to faith, and now he keeps and preserves us with the power that neither anything in heaven or hell can ever take away were the sheep of Jesus' hands. When you hear those things, supreme shepherd, savior, the psalmist says that should lead you enough to say, internally in my mind and heart and externally in my actions, I will submit to and seek to exalt him above all things. That alone should be reason enough for your heart and mind. But then the psalmist says, this is so important. This is so important. I've, I've tried to lead you with the carrot at this point to just in and of itself just show you why who God is and what he's done should be reason enough for you to come and worship him. And then he says, but let me give you one more warning. And the warning is found for us starting in verse 7. He says, for he's our God and we are the sheep of his pasture and the, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. But then he switches in tonality of voice. Now God comes and says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Do you see what he's doing here? The, the psalmist now, speaking in the voice of God, is talking about a time in Israel's history where Israel had already known God as supreme. They had seen him conquer the gods of Egypt and put them to open shame. They had seen God be their savior because he had brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And then they had already seen him as shepherd because he had cared for them with quail and manna and water in the wilderness. God had been savior. God had been shepherd. But something still happened. The people of God, despite knowing these things, still failed to engage in the worship of him. And so it says, verse 10, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When the people of God failed to worship, judgment came upon them. They did not enter a whole generation the promised land. And I don't have time to expound upon it today, but if you go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, when you look at that chapter, the author of Hebrews writing to the church references back to this psalm and quotes these verses from this psalm and uses these verses to do something, to warn the Christian church. And what these verses serve for us is this. There's a warning here. And the warning is this, church, there are severe consequences for not worshiping God. At, 
liberal scholars often didn't think that these verses should go with the rest of this chapter. They felt like it was added on afterwards. And I say, no, no way, Jose. It fits perfectly. Because what these verses are ultimately communicating is this warning. God is supreme. He's shepherd and he's savior. And if you fail to acknowledge him as that, there are severe consequences. And the author of Hebrews, when he talks about these verses, says here's the two consequences. Number one, if you are a true worshiper of God, if you're one of his sons and daughters, you can expect discipline from God. Did, did you know that? God loves you. God cares for you in and through Jesus Christ. But the author of Hebrews is very clear that if you and I fail to walk in worship of God, he might bring into your life things that will discipline you. You know, we love Psalm 23 where it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so we have the picture of a shepherd and he's leading the sheep. And he's like, here, sheepy, sheepy, you know, and he's doing this with the rod. Do you know what else the rod was used for? Right? Sometimes it was to beat away the animals, but sometimes you needed to knock the sheep and you needed to be forceful with the sheep. And they would call out, and, they, and sometimes it would be painful to get them back on the path. Why, though, was the shepherd doing it? Because to stay off the path would lead to death. And so the author of Hebrews says, listen, you might be disciplined if you are failing to submit to and exalt God, engage in worship. But you could also never really be a true worshiper to begin with, and therefore you face destruction. And that's what happened to some. Some of even those Hebrew people, they did not truly, although they were part of the covenant community in the sense that God had called them all about, some of them, he says, they did not enter my rest. They did not truly know me. And so if in your life there is a pattern, a continued pattern of a failure to submit to God and to exalt him, if you will not engage God in the way that he has called you to engage him, if you reject the call of this psalm to worship God, this psalm and the author of Hebrews says, you might be preparing your soul for the judgment of hell. Hard words, right? But words that we have to hear. It should be enough to cultivate in you and in me a desire to worship God, just seeing him as supreme shepherd savior. But if we don't, make no mistake, you're always worshiping something Worship of God will lead to salvation. Worship of anything else will lead to destruction. And so we come to this then. The big question that ultimately is left for us at the very end of this is this. So then how is it that we worship God? We see its importance. We see its significance. We see the necessity of doing it. We see the warning for not doing it. But what will it look like for us to both internally and externally Submit to and exalt God. Fortunately, the psalmist says three things in closing here. The first thing that he calls us to is to gather for corporate worship. He says you want to have a very physical and external representation of worship, then you gather with others to worship. I kind of hit on this point last week, if you were here, but I'm hitting on it again because it's just right there in the text. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Is that in the singular or a plural pronoun? Do you guys know what singular plural pronouns are, right? Does it, does it, say, does it say, you know, you singular or does it say us, plural? It says us. Let us come. That us is so important. 
Because that us implies let us worship and bow down. Let us gather together collectively. This is what gathering for corporate worship means. Why do we do what we do here on Sunday morning? Because it is an expression of obedience to the Word of God. It is an external action that shows us that God is worthy of praise. It's an external action of an internal belief. I want you to think about this for a moment. How can your family members know? And how can your children know? How can those in your life know that you are a worshiper of God? That you submit to and seek to exalt God? God knows, because he created us, that we're not very bright. And so he says, let me give you a very clear application of it. You come with others to gather. Because when you and I come and gather with others, we're submitting our schedule, we're submitting our bodies, we're submitting our time to the Lord. We're saying that out of everything else we could be doing in this moment, we have, we have substituted the worship of God for that. You see, we do it with our sports, don't we? I, I told you that already. Like, we'll set aside time to go watch a game or to participate in an activity. Why? Because we're lowercase worshiping, really, in those moments. God says this is what we do when we gather as the people of God. We come to make much of him. It's the way that our children and our world know that God is our priority. I can tell you guys all day long that I love my wife, Hannah. And Hannah, if she were up here right now, I hope that she would testify to what I'm about to say, so don't talk to her afterwards, don't. But, like, I could tell you all day long that I love Hannah. Yet if you saw or heard from Hannah that I never made time to talk to her, that I never made time to take care of her or to do things for her, what would you start to question? My love for her. Or you begin to question, I don't think, Dave, you understand what love is, right? In the same way, we know what worship is, and God calls us together. That's why the author of Hebrews literally says it. He says in the New Testament, he says, come, let us worship together. Let, let us not forsake meeting together as the habit of some, but all the more encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. This is what the people of God do as an expression of worship. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. And then when we do gather together, the psalmist literally comes and he says, and he starts the, the whole chapter with this. I love this. Come, that's a command, by the way. Let us sing to the Lord. That's the second thing that is part of our worship. This is what most people think of, but it's true. It's the exaltation of God with our lips. We are to sing his praises. Can I get an amen to that? Did you know that as the people of God, we are called to sing his praises? We are called to use our voices. It's not just showing up, but it's, it's speaking his praises through song. Now, can we speak his praises without singing? Of course we can. But God's word over and over again calls us to sing. And because I'm an equal opportunity pastor, I'm going to tell you what I told the first hour. Did you know that God's word 
doesn't suggest that you sing. That God's word doesn't say that singing can be a good thing for you. Did you know that God's word commands you to sing? And some of you are like, I don't have a great voice. Music's not really my thing. I love you so much to say, get over yourself. <laughs> because it's not what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what you think you're capable of. Your God created you. Did you know that he gave you the voice that he gave you? I have a family member who will remain nameless who is tone deaf, right? We'll not name them. It's, it's, it's not my immediate family. Praise God the girls can sing. Uh, but <clears throat> yet they sing knowing that they are not on key. Do you know why? Because God's word commands you to sing. And you're like, well, that's the Psalms, right? I mean, like, of course, you know, the psalmist was a singer, so he's saying, guess what? New Testament says the exact same thing. Look at this, Colossians 3.16. It says, this is New Testament. Some people, people are like, well, that's Old Testament. They were all about singing, and they were ecstatic. And they were... No, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards who? God. Did you know that you are called to sing? And part of you are called to sing because God wants to humble you. Have you thought about that? Well, I don't really need to sing. God's like, yeah, you do, because I told you to, because you're proud, and you're afraid to sing because you're afraid what people might think. And the only person that you need to learn about whose thoughts really matter about you is me. Have you ever considered that that's why God commands some people to sing? Darn it, I didn't say that in the first hour. I'll go back. I'll write him a letter. But it's true. It's absolutely true, Valley Center Community Church. Because, follow my bouncing ball, God's word commands you to sing. To not sing, therefore, is called what? Have you ever considered that? So if you come on rolling up in here and you're just listening, you're like, I sing in the shower or in my car. Come let us sing. He has a very specific place in mind. It's when you're with the people of God. Am I being too hard on this point? Am I, am I hitting this too much? It's what God's word says. We don't talk about it enough because it does something to you. It is that external act of the exaltation of, of God. And so we're going to close our service this morning in just a second before I mention this last point. And guess what we're going to close with? Singing, right? Like I'm not going to let you get out of here without application. But there is one final element of this. I'm just going to blow through this one really fast because we talk about it almost every week. It's live in obedience to his word. You want to know what worship looks like? It's living in obedience to his word. Very simply put, to submit to God internally and externally is to hear what the king has to say and then to walk in it. And today, one of the ways that we walk in it is by gathering for worship. Today, one of the ways that we obey his word is by singing songs of praise. There's a lot more that could be said, but this church is where I want to rest. And if you're feeling today... Like you came into worship and you're just like, yeah, but I don't feel the emotion. He says, come with thanksgiving and, and with a joyful heart and I don't have that. The way that you change from seeing worship as a command to be obeyed to something that is to be delighted in is to go back to the why we worship. Today, when you open your mouth, you are worshiping the supreme God who is also your savior and your shepherd. If that won't create within your heart a desire to sing his praise, 
then God would be inviting you to examine your heart and to see what it is that you have put in place of worship of him, to repent of that and to turn back to him. All right, let's pray together. Lord, as we consider these things, your word is powerful, your word is true, and sometimes, Lord, we come across places in your word like this where, Lord, we are confronted with something, something that maybe we haven't fully considered or even known fully how to apply, and yet, Lord, your word walks us in it. You are the supreme God above all things, but yet you don't just reveal that to us. You come in Jesus Christ and reveal yourself in fullness as our Savior. Lord, help our hearts to savor and to rest in that, to see that clearly day by day, to see you as our shepherd and all that that means for us, and to never doubt those truths because your word is truth. And so now, Lord, we're going to offer up praise to you in obedience but because it's also what our hearts desperately need. So we pray and we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.